Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Welcome to Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. We are back around and we're ready to talk movies with you today. It's good to be back with you again. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. Nice to have you joining us. Yes, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theaters here in town. CECTheaters.com is the place to go online if you'd like to get your tickets reserved and find out showtime information as well. The Bemidji Theaters, we love getting to go there. They're in big deals now as well, so all kinds of great ways to get to go enjoy the movies over at the Bemidji Theaters. I was just there not too long ago, actually. You know, last night, the night at the time we're recording this podcast, last night they just had the opening of Spider-Man Homecoming, and from what I understand on social media, it was ground zero for the kids and the comic book fans to get there. Some sort of a technical malfunction, I guess, for one of the shows started a little late, but they got it off and people had a great time and thought it was a fantastic movie, getting great reviews. But you wonder how many parents got dragged to the movie by their kids. We gotta go see Spidey! That's right, gotta go see the new Spidey as well, too. We'll we'll mention a little bit more about that here coming up in a moment, but uh, we've got plenty that we want to get into today. We've got a main topic of discussion that we wanted to really get into today with uh, with this episode of the podcast, um, and that would be movie directors and talking about them a little bit. So we're going to, to spend a lot of time talking directors, but we are going to talk about what's going on at the box office as of late, especially a couple of current movies, one that's already out, one that's coming out now with Spider-Man Homecoming. Plus, there's some buzz for other movies yeah. this coming month here in July that's really picking up. And with the podcast, we're going to be off for about two weeks or so until we get to record our next episode. We have some plans for what we're going to discuss on that episode. It's going to be a potpourri, uh, some general discussion on a general topic that we are looking at, but also tying that back into some movies that are going to be coming out here later on this month. So uh, keep that in mind if, you, uh, if you're keeping up with podcasts. It'll be about two weeks until our next episode comes around. So that's why we wanted to get this episode off and running uh, in the meantime and make sure that we would get that um, before some of us have to go on vacation or are going on vacation. Yeah, and I think you should. You know, maybe a good way to launch into this and talking about what's currently out in the box office is one of those uh, where we are right now at the box office, where the summer of 2017 approaching the halfway point is underwhelming as far as cash goes. Uh, the people are, aren't coming to see the movies as much. But funny enough... This is a year where a lot of the movies that are coming out are at least getting, at the very least, decent reviews. Very. You know? Yeah. Yeah, the reviews have been quite good for uh, for many of the movies. You take a look at the, the top movies of 2017 so far, and this is just domestically. Um, Beauty and the Beast is at the top. That got very, that oh, got yeah. very good reviews. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's way it up there. Good reviews. Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was very well reviewed. And that was a Wo- summer movie. Wonder Woman is is third. Might even end up surpassing Guardians to move in second there. Um, and it's it got fantastic reviews. Logan was critically yeah. praised as well. That's fourth. Fate of the Furious then follows. That got okay reviews. So, I mean... 
I think good movies, this... good movies have done well. There's just not been enough of those that have hit hard enough at the box office. Well, and you get movie. You know, I think the only real swing and a miss, really, thus far, was Pirates of the Caribbean Five, which I think we could see that coming a mile away. You're not going to count Baywatch in there, too. Oh, well, yeah, but that wasn't something. You know, and Chips. You know, but those are movies that were yeah. they were just kind of served up as an alternative to okay. the other big movie. But you've got some great movies that are out there right now. Wonder Woman. It's a good movie, whether you like comic book heroes or not. It was still a good movie uh baby driver this is one you've seen yes. i've yet Can, to see it that's one of the movies that i want to at least touch on here at the start before we get into yeah. our main topic is is regarding baby driver i went last week and got a chance to go see baby driver i went the night that it came out it was a it was a tuesday Did evening you dress appropriately dress appropriately what like do you mean skyfall when you all went in your tuxes and bowler hats uh that you was did, didn't that was you? a different exception. That that was an exception there when I when I dressed up like that for that. Um, this time around, oh, I, where, I don't where even were your remember. Civvies? I don't even remember what I wore. If I would wear sunglasses like what like what baby wears in the movie itself, I don't think I'd be able to see the movie quite as well. So I passed on that. But I went to the movie. I am not a rated R cat when it comes to going to movies. I. I, I don't usually go that direction, especially I am in no way a rated R comedy guy. That is, I I don't usually touch those movies at all. It's just, it's not my kind of style. It's like, you know, too much violence, too much language for no purpose. I just, I'm not really one to touch those. So I wasn't sure. too sure about Baby Driver coming in for that. But as far as style, it looked incredibly slick and it looked like it was a different kind of heist movie than than what you typically see, and I was floored with with how good it was. It is. I, I'm telling you, we've talked on this podcast about finding original movies and original content movies that are out there, and how there is a a very noticeable lack of them in today's movies. Baby Driver brings that kind of creativity to the movies think a guardians of the galaxy-esque soundtrack that pulls from maybe obscure hits that you haven't heard from a long time ago or maybe ever heard or movie uh, yeah music that that just works so extremely well with what you've got going on in the moment in the movie and it fits that right into it plus you have that and you have a cast that is just sensational you've got kevin spacey in there you have you have john ham Isa Gonzalez, Jamie Foxx, John Bernthal, Lily James is in there too. I remember seeing her when she was uh, when she was in Downton Abbey, so it was interesting seeing her then on on the silver screen. And then Ansel Elgort, who is in there, um, he's been he was in uh, The Fault in Our Stars, uh, was uh, the primary movie that he's been in previously. This one, obviously, a much different movie, but he is very very good uh, here in his in the main role as Baby Edgar Wright, the director. We've talked about mm-hmm. uh, before how he's um, how he's delved into uh, what was it Shaun of the Dead and and all oh, yeah. and all of those movies um, with Simon Pegg and then uh, also I remember him from uh, from Scott Pilgrim versus the World yep. which was uh, another really very great, stylistic movie. yeah very stylistic movie this much the same way except in its in its own very distinct way and it is it is just everything that functions in the movie has a soundtrack that is perfectly timed for it a soundtrack or a song that is perfectly timed for it plus it fits right into the storyline and it's not just the style it's got substance yes it does that that was what surprised me there was 
a bit of heart to the movie as well. There is a there is quite a bit of substance and good character development that goes on in there as well. Even as you get a little bit of wisecracking or these these uh, these thieves who are kind of at each other's throats sometimes. So one of the other things we're kind of touching base on to, to put two of our topics together here: the box office is not doing what people would hope for 2017 thus far, and you've got some pretty good movies like this one and more yet to come. When it, if you're one of those people who's, I don't like movies about explosions, it's all about car chases and aliens and nudity and language, then go see a movie like this, because this is not what the movie's about, necessarily. Right. This, If you want to support um, their movies that are not the mainstream, so to speak, then go to see Baby Driver. Go to see movies like yep. this, because if you uh, if the box office for those kind of movies go up, they're probably going to make a few more of those. It had a very modest budget for the movie. I think it was about $35 million in that realm. It is, it I is blew re- the budget on soundtrack. Yes, <laughs> it has it has recouped itself and more to this point, and I would, I would love to see it keep doing better and better. I'd love to see this be one of those movies that, because of good buzz, it continues to do good business and does even better business down the road. So I'm telling you, go check out Baby Driver. If you are looking for something that is creative and very stylish and very fluid with the way it's put together and is extremely well written, you've got it right here. This is the movie to go check out because as far as originality is concerned, this is the most original movie that, that's probably been out so far this year. You could tell just from the box office returns from the opening week versus the second week. Usually there's a big drop, and if you hit about 50% drop, that's not a good sign. The drop has been very minimal, which tells you word of mouth is out there saying, this is a ghost. We saw this baby thing. Oh, ghost. See, baby thing. So apparently it's out there. The word yep. is good. So that's that's Baby Driver. It's, and there's others good that look to be coming. Dunkirk is coming up. Spider-Man just opened up. Spider-Man, have, the reviews are great. 94% yeah. on Rotten Tomatoes. A lot of very good buzz. Um, and when talking about it earlier this week, it was, it was interesting um, hearing a little bit from Robert Downey Jr. who said he really enjoyed putting this movie together because – Iron Man, Tony Stark is in kind of a, a supervisory kind of role here. He's like a mentor to uh, to young Spider-Man, to Tom Holland, who who plays uh, Peter, Peter Parker, Parker here yeah. in in this latest iteration. First Spider-Man movie that is under that is truly under the Marvel umbrella and not its own it's, thing, yeah. yeah. And right, and it's it's a very young Peter Parker, like a fifteen year old Peter Parker here in this movie, and it's it definitely plays on on that kind of style of of a little bit more fun and a little bit more. Um, just he's a kid yeah. in high school essentially, and then that's that's what they were going for here, and apparently it, it hit it out of the park, and they're expecting a hundred million dollars here this opening re- yeah. weekend. Reviews are fantastic. You also have War of the Planet of the Apes coming up, and the res- early res- uh, buzz on that is just really really good. Will you be there? I'm looking forward to it, but I got to hit one thing at a time. I got to hit Baby Driver before it's gone. Yes, but, you do. Yeah, I want to yes, see them do. both. Yeah, um, as far as War of the Planet for the Planet of the Apes, there's buzz that this is the best conclusion to a trilogy in the last 10 years, or maybe ever, some have said. And that trilogy has been surprisingly good, the way that they have had so much thought and 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 writing driving those movies, and they have added so much substance to the, the Planet of the Apes um canvas that that was already there and in place and they've added so much to it with Mm. these three movies and the depth of field on these characters has been especially caesar and andy circus and the job that he's done on caesar Mm. has been tremendous the question is is this 
the year that he finally breaks through and getting a Best Actor nod. I think um, he should. Because Caesar, his performance as, as Caesar has created that kind of buzz here in the last two movies that have come out with Rise and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Is this the one where it finally happens? They're, they're starting to get the support drummed up. From Gollum to King Kong to you name it and to Caesar – uh, sometimes people win those Oscars for not just this role, but everything leading up to it. And it's time, it's time. Let's award them for this. And I've, you could see that over history. At least to get a nomination. Yeah, at the very least, this is going to be one of those things. Maybe this particular role of Caesar isn't you know the best role he's ever done. Maybe, but you look at everything that's come before. It's time for some sort of a recognition. But you know, we're talking about style and substance. Maybe this is a good way to segue into the main topic. I think it is. Where does that stuff come from? And that really leads us into our topic for today which is the directors. Yeah, the directors, you know, I... The stars we don't get to see on screen. The guys with the megaphones. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's very very suitable when you think about the original uh, way the directors yeah. did things. Yeah, di- directors, Dave, you know, we, we've talked about the stars, and we discussed a little bit about how the the leading, the, the leading ladies and the leading men of these movies um, function as far as actors and actresses are concerned. Directors... Directors are a little harder to quantify sometimes because they each function in very different ways, yeah. and you don't necessarily see them um, and their work. You don't necessarily see their fingerprints all the time, but but especially with some of the the more notables of the present day of the past, you see their fr- their fingerprints very clearly on the movies in which they direct, and it's it's those who who know how to leave. An unmistakable fingerprint. Who are some of the more revered directors, especially? Yeah, you know, it's something I just thought about. You know, there are some that are out there that are directors that the word director to describe them really isn't that appropriate. Maybe filmmaker. You know, and I know you could yes. split hairs on that, but he's not just directing. He's not just calling shots that somebody else set up. This is a guy that he's, you know, Spielberg's and uh, Tarantino's, they bring these movies from the very beginning, the very genesis, the seed, and they bring it forward into what you see. And those are the guys that have their thumbprint all over it. They're not just directing it. In some cases, they're writing it. They're producing it. James Cameron tends to edit his movies, too. And that just doesn't happen. That doesn't surprise me at you all. Know, he is James very, Cameron. Very hands-on. Very, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. You know, But this is, you know, those guys are filmmakers, straight up. When you see a movie by them, the title card, A Film By, is absolutely appropriate. Brian Singer, you know. Yes. A Film By, yeah. There's, there's a little more substance to it there's oh, yeah. a little more thought that goes into it and and preparation that comes with it as well and directors when when i've looked at at the best directors in history you know it it's no wonder that movies in the 40s 50s 60s it's no wonder that that is such a revered time as the golden age of film because when you look at the directors who populated those those three decades or so you're just mesmerized by the directors and that were around at that time and the movies that they put together and just how well liked their work was well, on the whole. Frank Capra just captured a, a sort of Americana that a lot of people like to harken back to, but then you got you realistically have to think, was that really the way things were? Or was that just a, yeah. a version of how we wish things were and we always harken back to the way it was when it never really was? You know, but he did it so well that he kind of skewered our perception of the past in such a way. But think about some of the other directors who were around at that time, too. 
Alf, Alfred Hitchcock, yeah, absolutely. Orson Welles, John Ford, Howard Hawks. Um, you can get into Stanley Kubrick when it got later on there into the into the sixties. Then Billy Wilder, uh, William Wyler, uh, Orson. I mentioned Orson Welles, uh, David Lean. Uh, just over and over, all these directors from that time. Even go back a little bit further to Charlie Chaplin yeah. when when he was one of the one of the guys who really was was a pioneering director and and helped move things along. Quite a bit in his in his own time and day. You know, one of the, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was pretty much at the end of the thought there, but yeah, just all these great directors who who populated that time and each known pretty well for having their own distinct style, and yet they were really trailblazing the way forward for directors and the way things were going to look in the movies. You know, one of the things I like about being a movie fan is I haven't seen every movie, and I don't just mean the movies coming out right now I haven't had a chance to see. Right. Some of the older ones that are way back there, I know they're great. I still have yet to see Dr. Zhivago, for example. It's a great movie. Um, seen Lawrence of Arabia. I didn't want to get punched by you. Yeah. Oh, but, so you're going into the lean direction there with with those two. But one movie that only recently did I finally see for the first time was considered to be the greatest movie of all movies was Citizen Kane, Orson Welles. I just saw that recently too. You know, yeah. and it goes down on a lot of critics' lists as maybe the greatest movie ever. I'm like, all right, all right. There's a lot to live up to to that. Orson Welles all over it, directed it in it. Um, don't movie one of the things that made it so special. It came out in the early 30s. But they made that movie in the early 30s the way that a lot of movies are made recently. And it was way ahead of its time. Not necessarily in story, but just the way that it was executed. And that's what the vision of the film was and the way they did it is like nothing else that was coming out at the time. And it holds up, despite the fact that it's black and white and all of this, it still holds up today. And there's a reason why it's the top of the list. So that director's vision or I should say filmmaker's vision, because if you knew Orson Welles, he didn't just direct. He oh, did, he did yes. all. He was in the movie, too. Come on. Yeah, he's a filmmaker in every sense. Like, I've even I've even heard some say that in, in the recent King Kong adaptation that was done by Peter Jackson, that Jack Black's character yeah. was sort of thought of as an Orson Welles type with the way that he was just driving, driving, driving away at the way that he wanted to make his film yeah. in that movie and the way that, that he was just, he was kind of a showman as well as a, a director too. But yeah, when, when you watch Citizen Kane, it's amazing because at that time, the camera work, the angles, yeah. the different things that, that Wells did with the camera, those were innovative things at that time. Some of the pans, some of the, some of the way, that, like when he used the, uh, um, the, the transitions. The yeah, the transitions were one when he used the. Um, I I was going to say the globe? mirror. The mirror. Yeah, the snow globe. That's the word I was looking for. Using the snow globe and using the reflection off the snow globe there in in the way that he did things like that, or some of the some of the big pans, the the panning out to panning in kind of things that were done, especially toward the end of that movie. Um, some of those things were very very innovative for their time. And then you think about the mode of storytelling as well, which is also very unique in the way that he told the story in in Citizen Kane and and the way he I I thought the way he used the newsreels at the beginning of yeah. the movie was was extremely creative. I I at first I thought I was watching a mini documentary on Charles Foster Kane's life when the movie started. Well, think about what was, you know, the 1930s was not that far into the age of cinema anyway. I mean, cinema cinematography really had only been around call it 20 25 years previous to this. So everything is in its infancy. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
So he was, a lot of times those movies back then were shot as if they were on stage. You know, they just set up a camera and go do your thing. This was the first one that was shot, in my opinion, very cinematically. And others would take cue from that. You know, The Wizard of Oz, of course, was shot very cinematically. And things kind of went from there. And now you get to 2017, while there's no limit of what you can't do, even without the camera, you move in CGI in a way that a lot of the directors continue to move things. We've talked about uh, James Cameron's use of 3D. Uh, They're just now, if you haven't seen the trailer yet, re-releasing Terminator 2 in 3D, post-3D conversion. And it's not to make things jump out at you as a gimmick. It's to pull you into. I remember watching Avatar in 3D, and you're going through the jungle, and the leaves are brushing by the camera, and I and amongst other people in the theater are kind of moving and ducking out of the way so we don't have the leaf hit us in the face. We got felt like we were right there in the jungle, and that's what 3D is for, and that was what Jim Cameron is well known for, technical innovations without losing the substance. Do you like, Dave, when a director is very much involved in, in having a fingerprint on every part of the movie? Or Absolutely. do you do you prefer when they take a step back? So you like you like when they are very much a part of the process. Well, one thing, we, we kind of touched base on this uh, a few episodes ago when we were talking about the Star Wars debacle. You know, the director works for the producer. So when this movie starts, the producer Which is weird to think about because yeah. the director has the final line on the yeah. on, on the credits. But the producer they they've 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 really shepherded this thing through. They've kind of brought it through the the writing process and so forth. So the director writes works for the producer. But there are occasions, many occasions, the directors that you know the best aren't just directors. We talk about Cameron, you know, there's Spielberg, he's a producer, director, sometimes writer. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan, what's he best known for? The twists. Well, he writes a lot of those movies. So if you have a director that's involved through the development and pre-production, their vision is very much going to be stamped on it because they and the producer and the writer have pretty much been in lockstep all the way through. Right. So you know, They're the, a creative team, yeah, essentially. Yeah, the director's impression is very much there as opposed to getting a script that was written by somebody else and it's, we're going to make this movie. Hire somebody to do it. Joel, you're going to do this movie for us. Okay, shoot what we have here. We have the vision for you. Give us some of your own input, but don't stray too far from the formula. All you're given, essentially, in that case, and yeah, this goes right back into what we were talking about in our last episode with yeah. Star Wars, is that the director is then tasked with Doing what they can as they are shooting and working with the actors and actresses as they are shooting and saying, I want you to try to do this or do that. Very much working from the chair rather than being able to do a lot of other things with the creative material. And really, it's it's fair to say that that may, that that may have been what happened and what ended up being a handicap for the, the young Han Solo movie is that you, there's not enough that was going on perhaps earlier on in the creative process of a, a, a tandem working together and the directors being a part of that rather than maybe only getting the chance to flex their creative muscle when they actually get to the shooting itself. They really weren't involved in the creative process prior to filming from what all reports that are coming out are. Wow. And even you know now they have Ron Howard taking over. He clearly wasn't either. So he's clearly a guy that was handed a story that's not just you know already been halfway shot. 
Um, but these are, you know, you had uh, Lawrence Kasdan and his son pretty much wrote this movie. Yep. You've got uh, Kathleen Kennedy, who's the producer of these, who's taken over Lucasfilm from George Lucas, who's retired now. Um, and so those were the, that was the creative force. They had come up with the general idea. All right, now let's, let's let's flesh it out. Okay, we've got that. Now let's get a director. And then they hired these two guys. As talented as they are, their background is comedy. But they were, from what I'm understanding, they were filming a comedy that happened to be a space fantasy when it needs to be the other way around. It's a space fantasy that does dabble in a little bit of comedy. A few There's, comedic elements. Yeah, yeah. They got the ratio wrong, and they were doing their own thing to the point where apparently they were deviating from the story. And shot it wrong as and a result. Shot it wrong. And acted so it wrong. They, they yep. said, well, we can't do this. And so then you get instances like where the directors get fired. But then you get other events like we were talking about where people shepherd these things all the way through. George Lucas, if you want to stay with Star Wars, he had directed the original and wrote it and you know produced it and all that stuff. He didn't direct uh, Empire or Jedi, but he did direct the prequel trilogies, all of them, and really shepherded them through. But then that's one of those instances where you have your fingerprints all over it where maybe your fingerprint shouldn't be the only one. Because nobody was telling George no. They just said yes. Yep. And it didn't work so well. He had people challenging him. He had other people involved in the original trilogy. And now these sequel movies and all are the whole other ball of yarn. You know? But it's you can get an idea where collaboration is a good thing. You want that fingerprint of somebody in particular or a group of somebody's, but it doesn't always work that's a ball of yarn that we are not going no, to unravel, not this episode by the way. not this episode rick and nick talk flicks by the way is sponsored by the bemidji theaters here in town and we are very pleased to have them on as a sponsor of the podcast yeah continuing on with the, with the discussion dave yeah I, I think about some of the directors who who are as creatively linked with their movies as they are and have that kind of control that that lucas did and i think about a, a guy like quentin tarantino you know you are watching a Quentin Tarantino movie. <laughs> when you think about directors who have a very a very certain way in which they do things and a way in which their films come about, Tarantino is, as far as modern day, he's as clear of an example of that as oh, yeah. anybody as far as very distinct with the way that his movies come off. You know they're going to be violent. You know they are going to have almost a Western-like canvas to them. Yep. Soundtrack is going to be something very different. Usually it'll kick back a little bit to bygone to a bygone era uh, with the way that he does things with, with that. Um, and, and you know that your dialogue is almost a yes. character in and of itself. Oh, yes. The dialogue is, is its own beast. It definitely is. Um, the way that he shoots it as well has its own, uh, has its own quirks and creativities to it as well. Um, some some maybe more successfully than others with the way that he that he does that, but I think about examples of of a guy who who clearly has a grasp of what his creative vision is for the movie, and Tarantino is a very clear one in in today's today's films that you know you are watching a Tarantino film with the elements that he involves with it. Another guy you could definitely say that for is is Christopher Nolan because oh, yeah. you know you are going to get a, a story that maybe is not all that it seems when you're watching a Christopher Nolan type movie because he a labyrinth like plot i think is is one of the best ways to put it and he's going to explore a lot of different themes very very personal themes get explored in his movies uh, with with the way that he goes about it and and he knows he knows how to how to put it on a big canvas himself you know he's he's definitely thought a lot about you know the, what makes film great. You know, it, with releasing Interstellar in in seventy millimeter, like he did, and now he's going to do the same with Dunkirk. He he recognizes 
needing to make the spectacle of film and how there's there's that element to it as well in addition to how are we driving away at the plot here and creating something that is going to weave itself in and out the kind of movies that you have to go back and watch a time or two to piece everything together and yet it still leaves you asking some questions but you ask reasonable questions because there's room to think that there is a solution to this I just got to figure it out, much like what he does with Inception. Yeah, and they're very layered. There's a lot of character development. Uh, another example would be Clint Eastwood. And here's a guy that was well-known as a director, as an actor. And it's funny, you can kind of gauge how old people are by when you bring up Clint Eastwood, what is the first thing they think about? The old guy that directs the movies or Dirty Harry? You know, so, and those spaghetti I westerns. I think of the man with no name. That's what I think yeah. of yeah, from you, the spaghetti westerns. And, do you think of the westerns? And think about it. He got to work under a guy like Sergio Leone as well with those from, from those movies. Yeah, and it just learning about the essence of the western and the way that Leone relied on his soundtrack. He relied on very little in terms of dialogue, but the dialogue that was used was very, very useful. Yeah, and a lot of what you can uh, compare with that is you can really see a parallel between what Leon did uh, directing a lot of Eastwood movies and now Eastwood doing a lot of his own directing, less on the acting, more directing. Um, th- there may not be a lot of dialogue, there, but there's a lot of character development. The plot may be very basic, and all Eastwood movies, are the plot is very basic. But it's all about character development, whether it's just through their facial expressions. You could see him working it out on screen through the performance. It's really performance-based. It's an actor directing other actors, so he knows how actors need to be directed while you get somebody like, say, a, uh, a Jim Cameron, who's an excellent director, but he's a very tough guy to get along with because he hmm. wants it in a technical way. Oh, yes. check, out, check out the movie The Abyss, if you've ever seen The Abyss. Not the greatest movie I've ever seen, but the performances are really good, and the and the response coming out of it was that the shoot was a hellish nightmare because most of it takes place underwater, and not just in a tank underwater, but you know people in diving suits. Uh, Ed Harris, who's a really good director, had a nervous breakdown on this movie because of some of what Jim Cameron demanded. Actor, of him. you mean? Oh yeah, yeah. So you know he's got his actors really flipping out about things because they're really given a heck of a performance because they're being driven to do it. And he doesn't direct and in pretty that tough well. circumstances. Oh yeah, and but Cameron's such a technical guy that if you're going to sign up with him, you know it's going to be something fantastic. But it's going to be grueling. While Eastwood, he's a direct, he's an actor's director because he was an actor himself and still right. is. So he knows how to bring those performances out, and people love working with Eastwood. It was a walk in the park, and the movies are good or not as good depending on the movie. There's a difference between that. They're both great in the way they approach what they do, but they do it completely differently. You know, There's a lot to appreciate about directors who are innovative in that way as well. Yeah. That If they not only are doing their craft and doing it their way, but you appreciate them for, for bringing us something that we have never seen before. Or they, they do something in such a in such a way that it leaves such a, an impressionable mark. Steven Spielberg has has certainly done that here in the past several decades. Absolutely. Because think about the way, Dave, that he has made the summer blockbuster he what invented, it is. He literally invented the summer blockbuster. You're, you're spot on. It, 
basically Jaws, in, yeah. basically invented it. Jaws, yeah, was was just the the tip of the iceberg, really, with with what was to come as far as the summer blockbuster and what he what he would eventually come around with with something like Jurassic Park and and uh, the Indiana Jones movies and and all that he did with with making, even as a producer, not yes. just as a director. He was he didn't direct them, but he was involved in Gremlins and Back to the Future and Young Sherlock Holmes he, and all these movies. He knew how to and still knows how to entertain with with the movies that he is putting on screen to entertain to put them up there and make you have a great time coming to the movies and yet to have a really really compelling story behind it as well and just to go new directions on on screen as well whether it's the mechanical workings of jaws and the things that that came about to make that happen or the the CGI that that he delves into with Jurassic Park and the way that that became such an such an incredible visual picture then with the way that that all ended up getting shaped but uh, but then he can also go a direction of a, a much more serious tone like Schindler's List and, and say, can yeah. go into ma- making one of the great films that that has ever been made um, and and go on such a poignant and deep and and really something that will drive away at the heart kind of note that he could go to with that and and yet. He, that's another thing to appreciate about directors is when they can they can innovate and they can make a, a huge impact like what he did on the blockbuster, and then they turn around and they do something maybe totally unexpected or maybe a little bit off the beaten path of what they normally do, and it still wows you. And I think Spielberg did exactly that with what he did with Schindler's List and showed that there's a lot more that I can do if I go this direction with, with how I shoot my movies and with how I put my movie together. Spielberg is such a an amazing talent as a filmmaker. He could literally put out a movie called Phone Book, and it would be Tom Hanks reading from the phone book. But the way they would do it <laughs> would be entertaining. You know he could do it, and I would pay money to see it. But Spielberg, you know, it's interesting, Jurassic Park and Schindler's List came out in the same year. So if that doesn't tell you what kind of a range there is and in a very short span of My time. My gosh. And it was almost a turning point in his career. You look at any, about 1993 is when they both came out. You look at 93 and earlier, everything was very well tapped into the imagination of the kid. Now, there were exceptions. Amistad came out before that, and uh, Empire of the Sun came out before that. But most of what he was doing was very imaginative. It led to the imagination, whether it was Indiana Jones or Jaws, you name it. And then came Schindler's List, and it, the ratio swapped ever since then. He does do some occasional adventure stuff. He's done some of the Jurassic Parks. He directed the first sequel. He still produces them. Um, he did Super 8 and others. But now you're getting into Schindler's List. You're getting into Saving Private Ryan, Munich. You're getting into heavy stuff, you know, very serious stuff. Lincoln, you know, recently. The ratio has changed, but he's uh, you can clearly tell that Schindler's List, mm-hmm. I think, really kind of it affected him in a deep, deep way. As much as I love imagination, there's some important stories to tell that I should tell and has, and they're fantastic. Yeah, another one that I wanted to add in for the the previous part of the ratio, E.T. Absolutely. Was another one, definitely. As far as creativity and going going somewhere new with it and putting it up on the screen in an entertaining way. And there's talk oh they're going to be re-releasing for the 40th anniversary, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's 40th anniversary. It came out in November, I think, of 77. I've heard the same thing. Yeah. So there's trailers coming out for it. It's quite likely going to be re-released, whether it comes to Bemidji or not. Go see it and see it on the big screen. It's, you know, from the 70s, but it's it's a classic for a reason. Yep. Now, let's let's. I'm going to bring up one thing here. You want to talk about innovation. You and I have very different takes on this one director. I think he's a polarizing guy. 
Let's talk Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, we we do need to talk a little bit of Stanley Kubrick because tell me your side first. Well, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> I'm not necessarily a Kubrick fan. I'm not going to say out and out that I'm a Kubrick fan. I can I can appreciate what he did as far as innovation and weaving thought into the movies and and as far as trying to get you really thinking about the movie afterward of what did he mean by this what did he mean by that and of course the the best example of that I think is 2001 a space odyssey is is certainly one um I'm a huge fan of of things like Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb like I thought Kubrick was incredibly clever with what he did as far as a satire was concerned there. I mean, that that was something totally different. Like, when you see directed by Stanley Kubrick at the beginning of the movie, and then you watch the movie yourself, you're like, here we go. am I really watching a Kubrick movie? Am I really <laughs> watching this? This is hilarious. This is so clever. Um, so you see that, and then and then something like Spartacus. I... I'm not a huge Shining fan. It's just, it's not exactly my kind of movie. I mean... My gosh, is it is it something different? It, it sure is, and he he puts it on screen in quite in quite a way. Um, but I'm not really a big fan along those lines. I'm not a Clockwork Orange kind of fan as far as that's concerned either. But he he knew how to how to really weave in different themes and and to get you thinking about what he's trying to really touch on here. And and he did it in a way that was that nobody had ever really done before. So I can at least appreciate that. I'm not out and out saying that I'm a fan of his though. And you you meanwhile you 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 don't really go the not Kubrick really. direction. But this this goes back to the the point that some directors are their taste is not for everyone, but for the people who their taste applies to, they can really leave an indelible mark. I can recognize talent, whether I whether I like the talent or not. You know, I'm, for, I'll give you a sports metaphor, and I know you'll go for this. Basketball. I am horrible at basketball. Put me on a free throw line. Give me ten shots to make just one basket. Can't really do it. I'm just not. I want to see at you it. try this now. But <laughs> I recognize the talent and the skill. I just don't like it. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Well, that's Kubrick for me. Now. In the story, when you're going to go see a movie, you're going to go watch a story. Now, in every story, there's got to be exposition, something that moves the plot forward. It's not about, you know, it's, it's about explaining things. So there's, a, there's about three levels of exposition. One where they explain the heck out of everything. And so they basically spoon feed you what's going on. Then there's the middle ground where it's expected you're going to pick these things up, but you're not going to get everything, and that's okay. And then there's a whole other realm where they just don't explain really anything. They might set things up, and then they let things go. The Shining and Kubrick, there's so much there's so much lack of exposition, it's really up to you to figure out not just what you saw, but what's going on as it's happening. I'm not really sure what's happening, but what is happening is so different and so captivating, whether you understand what's happening or not, that you can't not look at it. Whether it's a performance, whether it's a scenery, whether it's whatever, that is Kubrick. Kubrick is into that realm where he's just going to set things up. He'll maybe give you some exposition to let the dominoes get set, and then they topple, and sometimes in a way that's bizarre. You know, I don't see dominoes explode or do flips or float, but they do in a Kubrick movie. And to if you have not seen a Kubrick movie, you almost have to see a Kubrick movie to understand what a Kubrick movie is. And they're just left of center. And they're they're expertly made. I will give a lot of credit to that. 2001, The Shining, 
And then others are just out there that I just I don't think they hit with the public on a way that you know, people hope I eyes wide shut. I think especially as he got later into the sixties yeah. and then his some of his seventies and eighties work, especially because you you go back to some of his his previous stuff, especially some of his black and white stuff. Like even I I think of um, Paths of Glory is another one that comes to mind. That's that's a, a classic uh, with Kirk Douglas in that too, and a a really thought-provoking movie when it comes to to war and and discussing that a little bit as well so there's there are examples where it's not he hadn't gotten quite off the cuff quite yet uh, as far as the his line of thinking but many looked at it as pretty groundbreaking stuff then when he went that direction and started to go that direction with his direction well think of it like this it was less of a movie as you would understand it like a story and more art you know, just look yes. at The Shining alone. You know, the word has come out in the years and the decades since The Shining. Um, the story kept changing. You know, Jack Nicholson just stopped trying to memorize his lines because he knew that if he did, the next day he was going to have to learn new lines because they had changed again. Uh, so that is evolution as it goes. Shelley Duvall, who played uh, Jack Nicholson's wife, all but had a nervous breakdown on that movie because he was extremely demanding, requiring, some people have said, as much as 40, 50 takes of a particular scene to get it right. Oh, my god! Which is unheard of. Yeah. But Kubrick would do it, and you know every take would be very much the same, but why would we do another t- it just It just baffled the mind. And the way that the chaos was on the set actually making it is echoed in what you see when it is delivered. Now, it's a piece of art, but it's just out there. It's just, I can't, I need to get at least one foot on the ground for to understand and really get a movie. I have a toe, maybe, grazing an anthill on the ground. I'm barely touching. You know, I just, Kubrick, I can't go long for that Kubrick ride. fans are probably going crazy right and, now. And that's okay, and that's okay. <laughs> I love Tarantino, I love the art, I love the difference, but I have yeah. to be somewhat grounded and Kubrick, maybe I didn't take enough LSD. I never took any LSD, but maybe I needed to take some LSD I'm to gl- get a Kubrick movie. I'm kind of glad you didn't. <laughs> Very glad you didn't. The, another thing about directors, Dave, is that it, it kind of reflects the way movies themselves have gone. When you think about the way that Kubrick's style changed, we've we talked about innovation that directors try to show and how some of the great ones like if, if you go through the list of, of some of the great directors innovation is what a lot of them are all about or or not just being innovative but also being more and more realistic yeah. over time you know some some directors especially back in the 40s 50s and 60s they were known as as storytellers and they knew how to tell a really good story and maybe they would be innovative in the way they told the story um you think about a guy like william wyler who did something like Roman Holiday goes the romantic route there, but then can do an epic like Ben-Hur and does a completely different style of movie. Or a guy like Billy Wilder with the way that he made his movies. Talk about putting together movies that are really driven by interesting storytelling elements and and the way that like Sunset Boulevard, when you think of something like that and then the way the story gets told there. Um, But then... When you get into directors of today, like the the Martin Scorsese's of the world, or or the um, or even a little more prior to that, back in the seventies and eighties, Francis Ford Coppola, they're much more of a gritty tone with, oh, yeah. with the way that they go gritty. They try to be more realistic. They maybe it's maybe a bit darker with the way that they that they do things, but that's what they use to tell a story that is that is maybe in their eyes a little bit more. True life or a little bit more, it, it drives a little bit harder in than maybe other movies previously did. And, and that's how directors have changed now is some of them will go a little bit harder when it comes to the elements of the movie and the way that they are telling their story. 
whether people enjoy that or not, it, it's it's their way of trying to be innovative and, and creative in, in this day is getting a little bit more gritty, realistic um, in, in their mind anyway. We'll go back to Spielberg and look at every movie prior to 1999. They were – well, I guess you can't say uh, Schindler's List. That was pretty much black and white with some color added in strategic places. But then you get to Saving Private Ryan. Not only is it an extremely gritty movie, I mean, there are some scenes, and I can handle me some violence, and there are some scenes in that movie I have a hard time watching, not to mention the first 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. But they even washed the color out of the movie. There's a reason it looks a little harsh to the eye, because it was intentionally done that way. You know, So it's literally a gritty movie. And this is a guy that is very well known for his colors, and I mean, he's got a lot of the same team around him, whether it's writers or music. John Williams, almost about every movie that he's ever done has been with John Williams. Not everyone, but darn near. Um, the same cinematographer, the same lighter, all of the same crew pretty much are attached to just about every Steven Spielberg movie, and only rarely does that change. So you get a great deal of consistency when you're watching one movie or another. E.T. and Indiana Jones are very different movies, but they also kind of look like they're from the same farm because they are. You know, then you get a complete left turn, black and white with Schindler's List, washed out color tones with Saving Private Ryan. Um, it went CGI with the BFG uh, last summer or the summer before. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's and who knows where he's going to go from here too. So, last one for you here, Dave. Okay. Just about every director's list that I see, as far as greatest directors are concerned, has one man's name at the top. Got to be Spielberg. Alfred Hitchcock yeah, I would is agree. who I keep seeing over and over again at the top of director's lists. What made him so great? Because I, and I've got my own answer to that too, but why do you think Hitchcock is so revered that way? Because movies aren't necessary. Movies at their best, I'll put it this way, whether it's a good movie or a bad movie, how do you make that decision? Were you entertained? Yes. Okay. You have, to, you have to have an entertaining movie at the least. Now, whether it's because it's Kubrick as an adventure, maybe you didn't like the movie, but you were entertained by what you saw. Okay, at the very base, that's there. So Hitchcock managed that. What makes it a great movie is if you get pulled in and you almost forget that you're in the theater or you're at your house or whatever. And it's harder at home because you're in familiar territory. It's better when you're in an unfamiliar spot and it's a big, dark auditorium. Hitchcock pulled you in. He was the master of suspense. It wasn't horror. There's no you know, red blood in Psycho. Everyone kind of remembers seeing blood, but it wasn't. It was chocolate syrup around the drain. That's what they used for the blood. Didn't matter because it was black and white. Everyone remembers, I there was blood. Well, there was, but it wasn't red, you know. But he pulled people in like that. He was the master of suspense, and he said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing as best as I can remember, there's no terror in the bang of the gun going off. It's the anticipation that there's a gun and it might go off. And that's a paraphrase, but that's kind of what he was about. So if he could That's pull you in like that, though. he could do it with every movie he did. And he did a couple comedies, too. Um, uh, the Trouble with Harry is kind of a, com- a remorse comedy. And if you've ever seen that one before, it's a, it's a different kind of uh, uh, Hitchcock movie. Rope. Rope was filmed in the 50s, and it's a stage musical, actually, or st- musical, stage film. And it was shot like it was on a stage, like a, like a Broadway stage. But it pulls you in because the story is about two guys killed a guy to see if they could do it. They stashed his body in a trunk and then hold a cocktail party with the body right there and just to see if they can get away with it. It's just 
You're holding your breath. And it wasn't necessarily shot spectacularly, but you are so pulled in, a director has to be able to do that. And every movie that he did worked on that level, if for nothing else, regardless of what the movie was. And that's a testament. You know what made him incredible? He combined essentially all the elements that we have discussed exactly. throughout the course of our of our episode today. He was known for one genre in particular, and that was the the thriller type of genre, the the suspense thriller genre. And yet, every movie that he did found a way to do something different with that genre. Think about the the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, which is really entertaining to watch. Yeah. If, if you've ever gotten a chance to watch it, it's Twilight it's quite Zone-esque. Good. Yeah, yeah. He finds a way to weave a different story every time, and every time it gets you feeling the same kind of edge of your seat, popping out of your seat kind of feeling with the suspense thriller style that he does. And every time he he found a way to do something new and different with it. I, I think about some of his movies. I once saw um, Saboteur, which he, he made in yeah. the early 1940s. Very good movie. Very, very good movie. Cross-country kind of jaunt that he would occasionally do with some of his, his movies. You Flash forward then about 15, 20 years to, to North by Northwest. That is basically Saboteur except to an even greater degree as far as the actors and actresses that he worked with and also the um and the type of story that he told and the layers that he added to the characters he added a little bit more layers to the characters in that movie and he found something uh, found a way to do something different with it and he was able to to build upon the actors and actresses he had in Saboteur, and then he's, he's got Cary Grant and even Marie Saint this time around, plus a, a slew of other great ones in the cast. By the way, I love when directors have like a repertory kind of crew that they yeah. have that they pull from frequently in their movies. Tarantino does it, Christopher Nolan does it, Alfred Hitchcock Absolutely. definitely did it as and well. He, and one of his favorite parts was the cameo. He's in, in some oh, way, shape, or form, yes. every movie he does, even if he's just walking in the distance. That's Hitchcock. He will appear somewhere. There's there's a YouTube video that has yeah. every single Alfred Hitchcock appearance in all of his movies, and it's it's great. It's funny watching how discreet that they are sometimes, sometimes less discreet, like North by Northwest, where you clearly will see him there in that movie. Um, but it's it, it's great because he, in the midst of all of that suspense and that thriller suspense, he adds this bit of dark comedy in there as well and this bit of this wit and humor which is why a guy like Cary Grant was perfect yeah. for being in his movies because Cary Grant was just dripping with wit and that that humor in the midst of a pretty glum situation, situation or yeah. an intense situation <laughs> he's he's sitting in the back of the car with two guys flanking him who are are in there and he's he's cracking jokes with them about you know where are you taking me and just uh, and well i've got to talk i've got to call my mother and he's just going on and on and all of that and he's he's making these these jokes in the midst of what is kind of a dark situation yeah. and there's there's a sinister tone to his movies and yet it's not so Playful. sinister that the yeah that the lightness isn't lost in some of those moments, but he still finds ways to go deeper. Psycho went deeper, um, and you think it definitely went deeper in that movie in it, in its own way. Went more toward toward the horror realm, but didn't quite get there um, as far as the, that type of thriller. Vertigo went deeper. Oh, yeah. That was another one that that really when you think about 
something different that he did. It, Vertigo definitely went along those lines. And that's that's another part that makes his movies kind of cool is sometimes where he he went into elements like like discussing some of the the mental side of things a little bit with with Vertigo, which which was really interesting and compelling when he when he went into some of the the complexities of the mind and perception and the way that that gets reflected through the way it was filmed as well. All these elements that we've talked about, it's no wonder that Hitchcock is so revered as one of the greats. He's the Hitch com- when it comes to when it comes to directorial stuff. I, I I love it. He can he could do so many different types of movies like. To Catch a Thief, very different kind of movie, um, a little bit lighter, but and yet it still has that thriller element to it that that gets mixed in. But he, it's just so innovative the way that that he was able to do things. And I I have gotten more and more into Hitchcock here in the past few years, and like the past year or two, and I'm so glad that I have because it has been really cool to watch his movies, and I've. I've come to really enjoy them. So maybe a good way to wrap all this up. We talked a few episodes on the podcast before about the stars of the silver screen. You get to see George Clooney do what he does. You get to see these guys do what they do. Um, you don't you really get to see the directors all that often. Uh, you know, while Hitchcock has a cameo in every role, in every movie, I think the only time Spielberg was ever on stage was actually the Austin Powers opening sequence in Goldmember. If you remember that. Yes, that's right. But go watch these guys on YouTube. And it's funny. Usually the ones that are the most genius and innovative are out there. Go watch Tarantino on The Tonight Show. It's a ride. Even Hitchcock, if you go back, he won an Oscar. And all he said was, thanks. And walked off stage. Yeah, it was. And people thought it was it, an honorary Oscar, pe- but yes, yeah, still. people took it as an insult. Like he really didn't care, but yeah. that was who he was. Yeah, and plus he would he would get on and introduce his movie trailers as well. Yeah. He would be in them. He'd like, come take a look at my next picture. Yeah, that's kind of how he would be. The, yeah. the the movie trailer for Psycho. He's on set in the Bates Motel. Thank goodness they've cleaned up all the blood. There was blood everywhere. I mean, that's that yep. was the trailer to the movie, you know? So he was an interesting guy. Go watch a YouTube interview with some of these guys. Some of them you could tell are just Hollywood directors. Well, I don't care. The next director would be cool. But then you could talk to the visionaries. And as far as visionaries, Spielberg comes across as the most sane of the bunch. I can't wait to see what is going to be regarded as visionary from directors in the years to come. What is really going to make an impact? Is it going to get even more realist and more of a realism to to the movies that are to come from directors are we going to see more directors who are not known necessarily for being a certain way and having a certain style but for constantly reinventing themselves with every single movie that they do i mean some directors i think today some of the bigger ones are the ones that are on the move up are the ones who can constantly reinvent themselves over and over again or have innovative stories that are different every single time that they put it on screen i'm I'm curious what that's going to look like. And not only that, but I'm also curious. We we talked about Patty Jenkins and the impact that she made on, yeah. on the Wonder Woman movie. What are woman directors going to start to con- are, are going to start to? Are they going to continue to keep moving up a little bit more as far as getting more film opportunities? Well, and what's in store from from them as far as what they've got as far as ideas? Look at Catherine Bigelow. I mean, she this is the gal that did Point Break, the original, and then did Zero Dark Thirty. I mean, how different yeah. can you get? Oh my gosh! So talk about amazing talent. But I think that next crop 
of what will become the Coppolas and the Spielbergs of the next generation. They started out with their small, very independent movies, and now they're getting on a big stage. Let's look at Star Wars alone. You've got Ryan Johnson. What had he done before? Looper was a great movie, if you haven't seen that one yet. Uh, Colin Trevorrow started off really, really well, and also he's gotten into the bigger movies now. He did Jurassic World. Uh, he's doing Star Wars. Uh, but these are guys that, when they started out, really brought something to the table. So they can do a Star Wars, bring it something of their own taste and flavor, which we're yet to see. And that will allow them the rights and the abilities and the privilege to do more of what they want to do. That's what I'm hopeful for, is that the directors that are on the way, that are that are starting to make their rise here in, in the present day, that they will not get caught up in these, these franchises or in these sequel fests. That they will continue to be able to give their own ideas and their own thoughts. Think about Christopher Nolan. He did three Batman movies, and he said, that's it. And we're, in between. We're doing these three, and yet he still found ways to make each one its own unique entity and to put his stamp on it and, and yeah. make what is probably the greatest comic book movie of all time in The Dark Knight. He yeah. still found ways to be innovative. And, you were and going in between, to say, did his own movies that had nothing to do with Batman. That's right. And we got uh, things like Inception. We got things like uh, The Prestige. You know, really, really interesting movies, and he's not the only one. Look at people like Zack Snyder, though. You kind of go the other route. Now, we've given him a lot of, you know, slack here, or given him flack, rather, because he does get tied into the franchises and really doesn't go beyond that. It's a lot of style, not so much substance. And one thing we had talked about briefly, he's kind of taking a bit of a hiatus right now with some family issues, which are highly unfortunate. The new Justice League movie, officially going to be directed by him, but with reshoots underway, and he's a little wrapped up with family issues right now, you have Joss Whedon stepping in to do the finishing up. So with DC finally starting to get things figured out with Patty Jenkins knocking it out of the park with Wonder Woman... So will Justice League follow in that vein, or will it be more like Batman Superman with, with Zack Snyder? Will And if Justice League does break out of this mold, will it be credited to Zack Snyder finally getting his act together and doing more substance over style? Or can you really put that on the table of the judge if Joss Whedon, who's clearly shown he can do this, yeah. is going to make a difference? I just hope that as directors move forward, that they will still continue to be able to make their own impact. That taking it back to Baby Driver, that we'll get to see more movies that are like yeah. that, that are creatively put together by the directors who are helming them rather than directors who are being tied to the studio or tied to the franchise and that entity that they are being pulled into and then they don't get a chance to flex their creative muscle. That's what I'm hoping to see from directors down the line is that the creativity and the innovation that is made directing what it is now is going to be able to continue rather than be tied down by these corporate planners yeah. who put these franchises together. But like actors do, sometimes they'll do a big movie so that they have the freedom to do a smaller movie. And sometimes it's contractually obligated. We'll fund this movie so long as you do this movie. Right. All right, all right. So then you get a Colin Trevorrow. Okay, I'll do Jurassic World. All right, I'll do a Star Wars. So now he's got two big chips on his table, and they were. And so far, Jurassic World was really, really good, and we're hoping the new Star Wars will be really good too. So then he says, "Look, I got these two great movies. Everyone saw them. Everyone loved them. I'd like to do this movie now. See what I deliver with those. Now watch what I can deliver with this." And he right. started out well, and he's he's not fouled up yet. Let's hope he doesn't. And that gives him the ability and the right to do those smaller things. So what comes after Star Wars could be a very well his own movie. And it could be something like a baby driver or something that just is his own thing that really is, wow, he can do this and he can do this. 
Creative is good. Yeah, we're, seeing the, ne- we're good. seeing the next crop. Well, we weren't really able to bring it up because when the term ransom demand is brought up, you should probably put that onto a, onto a podcast, but uh, apparently they're making the drop right now on the unmarked bag, so Rick and Nick hopefully will join us next time. But it's still going to be a bit of a break anyway. Yes, it will. We'll be off for about two weeks or so, and we'll come back around then. Uh, we, we've got plenty of movies to discuss by that point, War of the Planet of the Apes and Dunkirk in particular, but I'm going to be curious to hear your perceptions on are you gonna go to drivers are well. you gonna go to dunkirk in a military uniform no i'm not <laughs> i'm not no i'm i'm going to go with ver- with um a knowledge of what happened with dunkirk and yet very curious to see what's going to happen with this particular movie telling of it go so. dressed as a history professor of wartime complete with a pipe and monocle and patches on your tweed jacket I'll have to try to check out uh, a local thrift shop if that's going to be the case. (laughs) This has been Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, sponsored by the Bemidji Theaters here in Bemidji. Great place to go see a movie. Don't forget, cectheaters.com is the place to go for showtimes and all the information as well as ticketing. Don't forget, Tuesday's $5 tickets. What a great, that's that's year-round. Fantastic. Go on on Tuesdays, buy buy a soda, you get popcorn for free. And on Wednesday mornings, all summer long, $2 $2 movie tickets for family-friendly movies. They're doing seven weeks of this, and you don't want to miss out. Great movies on Wednesdays for kids. Baby Driver was out on a Tuesday night at the Bemidji Theater, so I went, paid my $5, and I got treated to the movie. Do so. not confuse Baby Driver with Baby Boss. They are not the same movie. No, they are not. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. Thank you for joining us for Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, and we will see you at the movies. At the movies.